I came back to find my little son. What have you done with him? Asked Lord Clan Charlie. King James II replied, By our grace, he is still alive, and quite well, I believe. A Compranchico surgeon carved a grin upon his face so that he might laugh forever at his fool of a father. Recognize this movie's quote? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia! Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends, and today's host, Tom, and with me as guests this week are... Andy. And Pat. Thanks for joining us. Andy has joined us for Ex Machina, Coming to America, Coming to America, the unfortunate sequel, and Passengers. Pat has joined us for nine episodes, including Broken Blossoms, Bride of Frankenstein, Michael Hahn, The Third Man, The Fast and the Furious, Madame Dubarry, The Spirit of the Beehive, Sunrise, and Nosferatu. Andy and Pat conveniently like movies. And I just realized Pat is our go-to guy for silent pictures. I think you've been on almost yeah, all of them. I've done, I think I've done every silent film. So. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, no, I didn't do um, Dr. Caligari. Caligari, I did not yep. do Dr. Caligari. Yeah, who, uh, you got to see uh, uh, Conrad Vitti performance, though. He was also in Caligari. For those who are joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points, unless I change my mind. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we'll follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Today we are going back to 1928 to find the origins for the Joker to prepare for the upcoming movie, The Batman. In 1928, Mickey Mouse stars in Steamboat Willie. The eighth modern Olympics were held in Amsterdam and the world's first trans-Pacific flight is completed by Charles Kingsford. During all of this, Paul Lenny's movie, The Man Who Laughs is released. Other big movies in 1928 include Noah's Ark, Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr., Fritz Long's Spies, and Charlie Chaplin's The Circus. So today's film is about a man named uh, Gwynplaine, who is the unfortunate son of a lord. And this lord uh, got in hot water with the king, James II, and that man was killed, but Gwynplaine was scarred. He was um, had a smile drawn into his skin. And then we meet him as an adult, and he is a traveling clown performer who is always smiling on the outside, but he's crying on the inside. He's, he's kind of deeply upset, and he is looking to court his co-star, uh, D. Um, but it looks like the his kind of royal connections are going to get in the way of his future. Andy, if you had one word to describe the man who laughs, what would it be? Tutti. And uh, Pat? Carnivalesque. And my word would be grotesque. It's time for question one. 
why does Gwynplaine think he may be worthy of D? Locked in. Locked. All right. Andy locked in second and last due to our poor showing tonight. So what is your answer? I uh, the answer is that um the uh the the Duchess, I forget her name, uh, but the the Duchess may have found him attractive even though she saw his smile so he he felt validated like he might not be a, a horrible monster that he he could be loved perhaps and that opened up the gates that he he could believe maybe that that d loved him all right very good and pat what do you have yeah basically same idea he says he says something like a woman a woman has seen my face and may still love me something like that so yeah same idea Okay, very good. Points for everyone. It was, in fact, the Duchess uh, Josiana who uh, desired him, and he thought maybe this will make him worthy. And I brought this question forward because I wanted to talk about how the grotesque functions. The grotesque is very important for Victor Hugo. He actually he wrote a play about Cromwell, and while the play is not particularly famous, there's a preface to it in which he kind of goes on about the modern and how the grotesque informs the modern and you know the deformity of the body is very important in his work, as you can see with like Punchback and and this. Um, this, by the way, is based on a Victor Hugo novel, if you didn't pick that up. Uh, and he kind of has this idea of the grotesque as uh, in twofold. Uh, one, it's like something next to the sublime that makes the sublime more clear. So something like, doesn't use the word beautiful, but I think that's what he means. And the other thing is the grotesque is also like the collapsing of opposites together, which also got, I think, kind of factors into what you're saying, Pat, about the carnivalesque too. Um, and these things are kind of in Hugo's preface to the, the Cromwell play. And I was wondering what people thought of like the grotesque elements of this film. No, I'm curious. How are you, how would you? Because as I as I as you were just joking, I, I pulled up my Bakhtin. Um, how how would you differentiate between carnivalesque and grotesque? I think the carnivalesque would be the the sort of celebration. So the uh, the the kind of Bacchanalian celebration in which sort of normal roles are inverted or foregone with, and the grotesque. I think within a Bakhtin context is a little different. I think it would be like the um, the sort of physical, the normal physical things that bodies do, that human bodies do, but kind of carry to excess. So like the ideal body is, you know, think of like the David, right? Very beautiful, it's Michelangelo's the David. But like the grotesque of that would be like David shoving food down his mouth. And that would be within the framework of the carnivalesque where you would, you would have a space in order to eat that kind of food, you know, or, or like David defecating or something, which would be, you know, pre yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty gross. Good. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I had uh, two thoughts about the grotesque in this case, I guess. One is that it's interesting to me how, um, and just thinking about the Joker kind of is the way that the Joker played out in the 1989 movie, is that he's just so popular. He's like, a, he's a man of the people. They don't really show that much of the actual performance. Um, it's almost more hinted at, but whatever it is, the way that he presents during the performance or the nature of who he is just seems to uh, create this like populist following to, to the degree that there's like a riot at the end of the movie when, when people are upset about it. 
Um, it's just interesting why his performance wasn't shown. So it's not that it was just so compelling that maybe it attracted people. It's almost just like who he was and how the, the grotesqueness of him was one of the big attractors. Mm-hmm. People gravitate towards that for some reason, because it's, they can feel better about not being that way because the, they like the novelty of it. I don't, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, what, what that theme, how that theme comes out. I think it's interesting to bring up the 80, the 89 Batman, because he's this character, you're right, has almost more of a in common. I mean, he's, he probably has more in common with like Heath, Heath Ledger's Joker in the sense that it's sort of this like physically scarred individual. Um, and I, you know, it, it even looks like Heath Ledger's the Joker a lot more, but compared to the, to the 89 Batman, but he does have the, the 89 Batman had much more of that popular appeal mm-hmm. and sort of comic aspect that was that was not in some of the other sort of iterations of the joker um and you're right it is interesting that this guy you never actually see his performance and yet he's just sort of loved <laughs> and sort of yeah is it is it just that what is it about his sort of you know do, do they actually think that he's joyful i mean even his, his co-performers is that great line where the other clown says to him like you know when he's the other clown's taking his makeup off and he says something to him like, oh, how great it is that you don't have to ever take off your smile or something. It's just like... It's like ultimately great. complimentary and completely insensitive. I mean, it would be like somebody who's playing an ugly person and being like, it's so great you don't have to put your makeup on. Like, oh, so well suited for this role. Like, it's so terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's so great you don't have to gain weight for that character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> backhanded, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it's distributed. But it's like even his some of his coworkers don't quite get what it's obviously his his pain is. So yeah, what is what is his ultimate appeal to people mm-hmm. is obviously rooted in his deformity, and yet it, it's sort of a it's a very odd concept because they don't totally seem to just see him as a freak. You know, there there is sort of a sense that they there is sort of an attachment to him as an individual as well. But it's an interesting question. The other thing I was going to say that's that was um, not physically grotesque, but if you think about the way that they uh, the other Jokers are, that their outside really like ends up reflecting how twisted they are inside. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're just deeply devious, and I haven't seen the Joker uh, with uh, Joaquin, but um, but everybody else pretty much plays it that way. I love my favorite is the animated Joker. Uh, with Mark Hamill. Yes, fantastic. that is great. Yeah. That is that is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so good. But uh but in this case, um Gwynplaine is completely innocent internally. I mean he's almost uh to to a fault. Like he's 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 almost not even worldly. Mm-hmm. Um and uh but the Duchess is played in this super weird intense way where it's like she is like this mania inside almost that mm-hmm. that they present and she's beautiful on the outside, but but whatever is inside her seems a, a little twisted. And so it's like a separation of those two things. Yeah, and I, I like the scene when she sees him. What's suggested is that his deformity is a turn on. Like that's that's a really odd fetish to have, you know. And it's it's really kind of all the more gross because it's like eight. A deformity arouses her. That seems to be the case, um, and so it's kind of another collapsing, right? Of like 
like sexual arousal and like physical disgust become kind of the same thing. And I guess she's also um, sponsoring kind of the carnivalesque as well, because she's this, this duchess, this highborn person who's like among the people and getting groped and, you know, um, that type of thing. So it all seems to be of a piece. It's conspicuous in the movie. Yeah, it happens mul multiple times in the in the mm -hmm. uh, the Duke or whatever. He's like, "Yeah, you let all these other people have liberties with you that your fiance mm -hmm. doesn't even get." Yeah, what's the deal? <laughs> I one of my favorite on another unrelated topic. One of my favorite like set pieces is his portrait. <laughs> that was very funny. That made me laugh out loud. It's time for question two. Now there are two possible points for this. Mm. So uh, if you get both right, you get two points. If you get one, you get one point. If you get none, you get none points. So let's go for it. What animals does Dr. Hardquanon, if I'm saying that correctly, have to put on display at the fair? Oh, I know one of them. What is the second one? Yeah, that's a good question. The one, the one was so novel that I definitely remember it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. We, I don't whether we remember the same one. We will be interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I'll lock in because I don't know. Second one, I'm not going to remember it. Mm -hmm. Locked in. Yeah, locked in. Locked in. All right, Andy. What do you got? It was a five-legged uh, bull, I think, cow or bull. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. And Pat, what do you got? Yeah, five-legged cow. I don't remember the other one. Very good. The other one was a pig with two snouts. Oh, gosh, I don't remember that. No. Yeah, he mentions it. You don't see it. I don't think you really see the whole cow, but he mentions having a pig with two snouts. Okay. At least um, the cow, you you get a brief glimpse of a, of a pen or something. You're right. Yeah. He does. I remember it now. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. See, I told you. Yeah. Nine, 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 <laughs> um, the, the, uh, um, I did remember that because he says he says to him when he says, what do you have like in your show? And he says, yeah, I have. I did not remember that, but yeah, I remember it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep, there we go. All right. So I brought this forward. I was bringing this forward to talk about the, the carnival or the uh, the fair, whatever you want to call it. Um, we somewhat got, we are free to bring that up again, but we somewhat covered that in the, the previous question. We want to talk a little bit about the, the plot, which is... Uh, I, I think like somewhat convoluted, somewhat interesting. Um, what did you guys think of that? You mean the plot, the plot of the movie, just the general plot? Of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it struck me as very um, Victor Hugo. <laughs> you know, there's there's <laughs> lots of. I mean, it's very 19th century novel. There's yeah. lots of because at first I'd forgotten who Doctor Hart. How can we agree how we're going to pronounce it? Doctor Hardquanon. Yeah, sure. That sounds Hard, good. Hardquan Hardquanon. Hardquanone, yeah. <laughs> I don't actually know. That, that sounds very, it sounds like a French porn star, but I think that's what we'll go with. <laughs> but it was literally, I'm like, this is the problem with sound movies. I'm like, I don't know how you pronounce yeah. this name. Yeah. <laughs> like, even with Madame, um, is it du Dubari? I was saying Madame Dubari for the long, yeah. I didn't know it was Dubari. Mm -hmm. So um, so yes, Dr. Hardquanone, that I've forgotten which one he, I've forgotten he was the guy who'd performed the surgery in the first place. So I was kind of mm -hmm. confused. I'm like, how did he actually know who he was? So it does have that sort of French novel feel where some character that you kind of forgot about sort of shows up mm -hmm. much later on and plays some hugely pivotal role mm -hmm. in the story. And it wasn't until actually he died that I figured I'm like, oh, it was that guy. That's who that was. I'd forgotten about him. So it, it does have that very, um, 
French novel of like you know, piecing things together, but I didn't think it was that complicated per se. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of the, there's, there's a bunch of people and there's their mistakens and other people's pasts come back and it had sort of that feel to it. But I didn't think it was that convoluted per se, especially for silent film. And actually considering how complicated it was, it came across pretty, pretty well. I thought mm-hmm. some of the, uh, that stuff I I felt just um I was trying to pull out the themes or just understand everyone's motivation a little bit more or why they were included the way that they were and some of that was maybe a little bit muddy uh the the queen and her kind of trying to create this forced marriage the queen was obviously usually upset with the duchess for being negligent or not paying her the right respect but then she wanted to force this marriage to keep her in the position like i i didn't understand why the queen even cared really i got the impression it was sort of a punishment mm. i think the idea oh think, that's actually better. that was what i yeah, got that makes yeah. much yeah. more sense because i get the idea i get is that and i think this is the this is again this kind of collapsing of opposites is that um the the people who are in court are just vindictive it's just yeah. the whole thing. They're just, you know, um, absolute. It's going to say something else, but let's go with jerks, you know. Uh, and so Queen Anne was slighted, so therefore she w- she's going to force this woman to marry this kind of like deformed guy. Um, it's also I I tried to, I looked up why um, the Duke in the beginning was killed because it isn't mentioned at all. Um, oh, I, I thought they he said refused he to kiss he his hands. Um, right. Yeah, he didn't get fealty or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I In the novel, he's a, apparently a Republican. So he was just, he rebelled against Cromwell. Uh, he was like, maybe not with Cromwell, but he was whatever, against the crown in like 1650. And apparently he was just an idiot. Everybody's like, this guy's really stupid. And so he just went to Switzerland after the king came back and no one cared. Like Charles II had forgotten. But when James took over, James was like extra vindictive and, you know, went at this guy when it was completely useless and this guy was dumb and there was no reason for it. Um, And so, it, you know, the the book is, I think, maybe a little more clear on that. But even in that beginning there, because he doesn't even like James doesn't even remember what happened to the son. Right. He's like, yes, we did something to him, and he has to look to look to the advisor to, to figure it out. Um, but we compare that with like the the people at the at the fair and whatnot, who are even though they're you know rambunctious and I guess uh, not particularly genteel, they're also the only place in in the movie where there's any kind of sympathy, and it seems more like physically different somebody is the more capable of sympathy they are yeah all those people were much more genuine and right had sympathy had had love for him mm-hmm. all the yeah all, all the court was just a, a mess of a bit of intrigue and right vindictive i mean to i know it's uh the 17th century or 16th century it's the uh, 18th century 18th century yeah close. the uh that like punishing the duke by taking his child and physically scarring him i mean it's it's pretty intense <laughs> yeah well i guess that was the 17th century but yeah 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 oh, right 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 right, right. yeah it, it it it's pretty hard i think it's just like the idea that it was just it's not necessary to right it's it's in its own way a kind of excess um 
but that beginning do you want to talk about the, <laughs> the, the that opening 10 minutes or so um well, it's the the thing that is just like actually really disturbing is when they're closing the the Iron Maiden and they have those like horns or whatever going, mm-hmm. you know. So you're like, seriously disturbing. Yeah, I wasn't sure if uh, if um if you could live in that device for a while if you if you were really still and it wouldn't like poke you, but I'm not sure because it seemed later like it was a death sentence pretty much. I didn't research it. The impression I got, it's like a slow death. Like it kind of bleeds you. That I type of thing. I believe that it didn't even exist anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it wasn't it's... actually a real thing. Yeah. yeah that I, I remember reading a while back that like, yeah, it, it, they, they sort of made it up as a mm. like, look how horrible people were. And they had the Iron Maiden as sort of a, a, an example of that. But I don't like think- Like a token it, torture device. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it was it was something where I remember reading it something like there is evidence that like something like it existed in like, you know, periods of history, but like during that particular period of history, like it was it was made for like a museum as like a tourist trap, literally a like, Weird. a like they basically made it and were like, look at all these terrible things, you know, as like a chamber mm-hmm. of horrors kind of thing. Um, and so it never actually existed, but I don't know actually how it theoretically worked or how <laughs> Or, or in the cases, I think there were some instances like you know, two thousand years ago or something, and something right. like it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how it, those actually worked. It reminded me of two other fictional times when a device like that was used, really uh, random and probably not usually compared to this movie. One is Matilda, where the, pr- the principal throws kids into a device very similar that was called the Pokey. Oh, I remember that. Yes, I, I haven't seen Which that. Which I, well. my my kids love Matilda, so I've I've seen that a, a whole bunch recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the second one, which is more weird, is uh, in Harry Potter, when they uh, take people to the uh, wizarding trial with the Wizengamot, which my kids also really like Harry Potter. They put people in a cage, and the, and there are these like little uh, pokey things that are on kind of like threads. And the whole time that somebody is testifying, these random like lackey people are just slowly tightening the pokey things. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea why why they would do that in that movie. It doesn't make any sense to me, but it was just what sprung to mind. Mm-hmm. I thought of Bill and Ted's when they got when the they go back in the Middle Ages and like throw them in the Iron Maiden, and they're like, <laughs> "Yeah, excellent." <laughs> <laughs> I have to see this movie. I, uh, You've never seen Bill and Ted. I've Ted's? not seen any of oh, the man. Bill and Ted's. Oh man, I I do not think I've seen three minutes of any of the Bill and Ted's. <laughs> they're yeah. so perfectly of a time. Yeah, I yeah I'm I'm told the third one is also very very good. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The second one has like a seventh seal joke in it. It's hilarious. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are at the end of round one. And at the end of round one, we have a tie between Andy and Pat with two points apiece. We will see you in a moment after these words from our trusted sponsor. Your friends and family keep getting possessed by the devil or another high-ranking demon. They spit blood, levitate, and destroy whole buildings with just their minds. You feel you are desirable, but the lord of evil keeps passing you by. Tom here to tell you don't give up. I have a solution for you. 
Don't waste more time on casual demon exorcists. See who our expert demon summoners match you with for free. Every 14 minutes, someone finds a demon that matches his or her particular thirst for power. Just go to our website, create a profile, and see what demons are in your area. Find your evil. Speak with an exorcist to see what demon may be best for you. That's e-possession. E-possession. Allow an enemy of the good and true to alter your metaphysical existence today. And we're back. Now we're with our guests here, Andy and Pat, and we're going to ask them a very pivotal question. And I'll start with Andy. Andy, if you could write the sequel to The Man Who Laughs, what would happen? Mm, I think, uh, you know, this movie ends with them kind of sailing off at, in their exile. And, uh, mm -hmm. but maybe, maybe in the future, uh, Gwynplaine um, gains some worldly knowledge and, and confidence. And, uh, and they, and they have a triumphant return to England where they, uh, he, he gets his seat in the, as a peer in the house of Lords back and starts uh, schooling all the vindictive uh, aristocracy or something. Yeah, I, I imagine him. He he um, becomes George the First. <laughs> um, so so as I, as as and when I was asked this question before, the most important thing you always have to come up with is your 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 elevator pitch. So the first thing is that is the title. Uh, so the title of the film will be "The Man Two Laughs." Um, of course, so that'll be, that'll of course, be the title. Um, and again, my elevator pitch will be: you don't have to worry about rights. This is in the public domain, so this will immediately have appeal. It is free. And it has a fantastic title. We are we are well on our way to a, to a film. And slam dunk. I, yeah, slam dunk. We don't even need, we don't even need to go any further. Um, but I, I guess the plot, if I had to come up with a plot as well, I would, I would, it's going to be Gwynplaine and Dee's son. Um, and his, and his name will be Gwindy. Uh, and so, <laughs> so Gwindy, Gwindy will decide that he's going to get revenge and he's going to seek out um, the, that, the, uh, the king's jester, Bartolo, Bartolo <laughs> whatever it is, yeah. whatever his name was. Un unnecessarily long. <laughs> the, the unnecessarily evil. Barkil Fedro. Barkill Fedro. That's also that's also a medication. There's, there's also a wonderful thing because what did what did like Victor Hugo think like English people's names were? Yeah, no, the, I know. The names are really so Italian, yeah. weird. Anyway, yeah. So he will he will go to him, and instead he is going to be determined to carve a frown in his face mm. instead of a smiley face. He'll carve a frown in his face, but he'll learn the error of his ways by the end. Gwynny yeah. will learn the error of his ways. Gwynny, 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 we need, to, we need to we need to ask the question so I can do my sequel for Titanic, which I think was fantastic. Oh, uh, you, you Titanic. So I was, what's the sequel for Titanic, Pat? This, I, Titan, again, it's just the title. It's all you need. It's going to be Titanic 2, The Lusitania. <laughs> it's time for question three. What date was Gwenplaine deserted by the Comprachicos? Locked in. Comprachicos. Oh, uh, I have no idea. So locked in. All right, Andy, what do you got? 
I have, I have no memory of a specific date other than, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. You want to take a guess? Um, Christmas. Okay. December 25th. Pat, what do you got? Oh, I guess I thought we were going for the year. I was going to go with 1690. Okay. Um, I will give Pat one point because it was 1690. Yeah, I didn't notice the exact. I only noticed 1690 because King yeah. James wasn't. Cause he wasn't. He wasn't king anymore. He wasn't king anymore. <laughs> he wasn't he was, king. It's, it's, it was weird. Yeah, it was. It was in Ireland. He was in Ireland at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah like they were like the only people who would acknowledge him. But uh, <laughs> I mean, the actual date was the 29th of January 1690. Okay. Um, two years after King. James yeah. had left England for That's the last. I was gonna say he wasn't king. He was king. <laughs> he dropped out at eighty-eight. The reason yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. No, I know. It's uh, so Victor Hugo cannot figure out English names or English dates. <laughs> All right. So I did. I brought this over. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but I want to talk about the style of the movie, which I think is most pronounced in the beginning. Uh, the the director was known. He was sort of brought in for being an expressionist. Um, he did a number of those movies that were, were very popular. I think he worked with with Ufa. Uh, and there are certainly a lot of those elements in there. And I was wondering what you guys thought of that. I thought that was a lot. I thought that was expressionism beyond that. Like there's some really, like there's some great expressionistic moments. Like I love some of the shots they have, even when the, like the, um, they have the soldiers come to arrest Gwynplaine or, you know, take him away. They have those shots from like the floor, like going up at the, um, the, you know, officer walking in. Mm-hmm. The other one I thought that was heavily expressionistic, which was, I also thought was a really disturbing, it, that was the, you know, talking about grotesque. I thought that sequence was really disturbing when they're in the theater and they don't want to tell D that Gwynplaine is dead. So, so they decide they're going to put the show on mm-hmm. and they all are like in the theater pretending to be the crowd. Mm-hmm. And everyone's <laughs> that sequence was really warped. Yeah. Uh, like banging, was, banging uh, boards on the mm-hmm. benches. And it was, yeah, it, it had this very sort of animalistic kind of tribal thing, but it was also just like, there's a really warped sense of like, we're going to pretend that a guy who's dead is alive to a blind woman <laughs> by faking a crowd. Like there's mm-hmm. a really warped war. Like I thought that was also heavily expressionistic mm-hmm. um, in terms of just the shots of it, the, cons- the concept behind it, just the distortions of reality. Like that was a, that was a very interesting scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree there, there's certainly a lot in the beginning there, but I thought it was, it's quite, pronounced even throughout it's quite interesting i like hearing about that i didn't think about that as much while watching it i was stuck in a bit of the in the technical world of of the effects and how they pulled some of that stuff off like the all the kind of pirate people on the ship and how they filmed the ship and they filmed it leaving and there was like smoke coming off and it was in the winter and it was kind of snowing and stuff um and then when the the kid gwynplaine no i no was uh yeah, it was yeah, he was it was him because he was walking around and he found the baby. But the way that they filmed the snow in his icy jacket and it was very shiny and to make it to make it work in the in the black and white um, filming, I'm sure was involved a, a lot of weird uh, special, I mean yeah, special effects, but really specialized towards that silent movie black and white filming time. And 
to make it look right. So I was more on the technical side. Yeah, I my favorite detail there is the the bodies that are hanging. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just have, I just have oh, bodies God. hanging everywhere, and like like the cliffs of Dover are just littered with corpses for some reason. Um, after this, really didn't he really didn't like James the Second? Yeah, no, he he really he, he didn't even bother to read his biography. He just hated him all the way through. <laughs> I thought even even the shot of though the dead woman in the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm guessing that was a real person just holding very still, but it does have a it had a very disturbing quality to it that was, mm. you know, again to your point, Andy, I think you're right. They must have done something to make it look right, you know, in the sense that it, it had a very eerie quality to it. Mm. Yeah, and that that kind of I it it isn't as expressionistic after that. And I think that that opening scene has such a like a kind of horror feel to it, which I mean, a lot of critics obviously have pointed out. Um, but I, I think that it's an interesting point you put forward, Pat, that like it it does really trickle through the whole thing. Um, and it kind of goes again to your your word, great word, Pat, the, the carnival, carnival-esque for the beginning. It, it does kind of like that kind of creepy, you know, psychological damage that, that's kind of writ large at the beginning, it sort of seeps into the rest of the world. And it, it is, everybody is kind of animal-like, even the, or you might even say, especially the kind of the upper class people. Um, that, they, you know, everybody's just kind of bestial. And that's and why I love heart. the monkey throwing the apple and just like that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. had to be a monkey. Mm-hmm. But I also assumed it, I don't know if this, I mean, Again, I don't having not read the book, I don't know if this is what he was going for, but the 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 fact that the dog is named Homo, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I assumed was supposed to be that like you know that the animal is the most sort of man, you know, is the closest to a man. So as, as you said, this carnivalist concept that the dog is actually the most loyal one in the whole thing. Yeah, um, and the dog had had a really important role to play yeah. in the in moving the plot along. Like yeah, multiple, I mean, multiple times, multiple yeah. times, the dog is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's the most effective. Yeah. yeah. Right? No one is as effective as getting things done as the dog. <laughs> <laughs> right? Everybody's kind of useless compared to him. Yeah, that, that is a that's a good point. Like the, the dog is kind of elevated. And it's again that kind of collapsing of opposites, right? The dog is sort of this this person who's able person, this thing that's able to set things right in the world of people. And it's um, you know, it's the the further away from the ground you are the more kind of strange you are, more anti-human. Like even the Duchess, like everybody has this kind of uh, quote unquote normal response in the theater. Um, but the Duchess who's kind of sitting up high, who's sitting further and further away from them has the oddest reaction. And it's kind of her lofty position is sort of complemented with this weird response she has to him. It's time for question four. What color is the little van locked in? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> locked in. <laughs> uh, all right, Pat. What do you have? Red. Andy, what do you have? Obviously, we couldn't see it. I would have remembered that, but I don't know why. But I have the impression that it was green. And Andy gets it. Dang it! Success. <laughs> there was an intertitle that said green oh and andy 
squeaks ahead for three. It's only because I'm red, green, colorblind. It's the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And apparently illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I see reds as greens even when they're written down. The word flips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some uh, synesthesia there or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Aphasia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I brought this up to talk about, um, actually I had another question, but we actually covered it. So I, I switched to this one. Um, nice. What was the other one? The other one we already covered was uh, what body is, what political body is Gwyn Payne elevated to? Mm-hmm. Which, did, yeah, I think everybody would have gotten that. Um, but anyway, so talking we could talk about the different groups but I, i'm going to talk about the the this kind of little family with our our philosopher friend um urus homo the greatest and... since shakespeare hmm? the, the greatest, greatest the greatest since shakespeare <laughs> like shakespeare only better <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah he definitely he definitely put himself ahead of shakespeare mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah he described himself initially as the philosopher which mm-hmm. i you know um, I guess he's a bit full of it, but uh, yeah, that little family, and then uh, D, who was played by, oh, what's her name? Uh, oh, Mary Philbin, who was the original Christine in their version of Phantom of the Opera, which they made oh. at the in the early nineteen twenties. So there is a sort of um, <laughs> she she's sort of known, I guess, for playing opposite deformed people. Uh, that's a uh, niche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that well, if it works for you. Um, but anyway, we talk about the the different like little family groups, be it the, that family that moves around in the green van, or the the kind of regal family that is their contrast that sits at the the head of England, or anything else you like. <laughs> I really liked uh, uh, in the end Urus or Ursus. Ursus? Yeah, Ur- Ursus. <laughs> this um, is, we're, we're not doing well with the names, but I think that's fine. <laughs> I, I actually really liked um, how later he was kind of just the, the head of this uh, traveling show, but he was really the, the playwright and that he just, his first introduction was as, as the philosopher. And mm-hmm. it's like, um, and I didn't realize at the beginning when, and I'm not 100% sure, when they find Ursus, is he living in the in the van, basically, mm-hmm. or was he living in a? It looked like a shack to me, but then I realized later that he might have. I think he already had. It was portable. Like it was uh, it was mobile. I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. So his life was already maybe kind of nomadic, and for lack of a uh, a different um, career choice to to specify, he just thinks he's a, a man who thinks. Like he he's just in the world and he's observing, and and then he ends up writing about it and. Um, I thought thought his implied kind of evolution over time was kind of interesting. He was he was a bit of a dynamic uh, character and ended up ended up being one of the most caring people in the whole film. I mean, he he loved them and he did a lot of uh, kind of fathering of of them. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was interesting. I thought he was because he he's obviously in the beginning is a bit you know he's willing to take in one child. I like his line is Are there two of you? um you know what there are two of you you know which is obviously he's getting more than he bargained for i guess is the implication um but the 
yeah he's got an interesting characteristic because you know even when you first read it it's you, you watch it you don't know is this guy going to be sort of like you take advantage of them and sell the guy as a freak show because especially when you see dr hard quanon um with his five <laughs> his five-legged cow um you know there's obviously an implication that this guy is just selling you know stuff and even i think he offers to buy him doesn't he from doesn't hard quanon offer to buy him at some point that there's this yeah, he said he's, of, he's worth a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's he worth a lot that. of money yeah. or something like that. Yeah, um, but the, you know, there's an implication that this guy could be a lot more uh, uh, devious if he chose to be. Um, you know, and you sort of have this element where he's he's almost contrasted with the the whatever his name is Bartolofino or whatever the mm. jester guy. That there's sort of this this concept that the 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 jester ends up being this horrible person, or the philosopher ends up being the guy who sort of you know takes care of them and, and is mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Which, which to your point of kind of contrasting the families, I guess I would put them in sort of their, their those are the contrasting positions in some ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there it's an interesting that he's he does, and as you said, like he's the one who sort of does come to he undergoes probably one of the bigger changes in many ways in the in the thing. Like most of the other characters are relatively static. Um, but he undergoes quite a bit of, of change throughout. He's an interesting, interesting character. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point that he's contrasted, not with like the, the patriarch or the matriarch, but with the, with the jester that, you know, the, the, they're, the jester is kind of this like agent of scarring and he's this guy who kind of held them together or, or made that kind of purposeful, um, I also do like the kind of like the travel traveling theatrical kind of thing uh going on there and the and the the fair and and all that um these kind of like theater fair shows have like a really fun history throughout the uh throughout that period and and earlier but they were always kind of like this it was a place where like people traded it was you know it was a big trading thing but it was also like very very body like these were like the unlicensed theater things like they were kind of pseudo illegal um and they're also like whenever they're depicted on stage they're also very very sexual like this is a extremely tame version of, <laughs> of kind of what was going on um but it's also it kind of brings me back like anybody read um Bartholomew Fair the, the Ben Johnson play well it kind of takes place in one of these things just no like, no one has read that play oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> except Tom except Tom not, not even Ben Johnson no no, <laughs> no one no one alive yeah <laughs> but um but it's the same it's like it's the same kind of idea the same kind of fair energy uh which I like how these people participate in that, even though it is very sort of a very chaste space, right? It's very kind of animal-like, but um, our our family is very pure. Uh, you know, I also like it, it. It was odd in the beginning how um, Gwynplaine has to walk outside the van or doesn't have to. But in that that opening scene when he's just running alongside of them, um, I didn't know what to make. It's like that. whipping the horse, kind of. Or oh, is that what he's doing? Weird. Yeah, I thought. Oh, I didn't know what. Yeah, I didn't really get. You think that you would either. have a seat like on a bench where you could, yeah. you know, sit and be the driver? Mm. Those were the sequences where I think I was on the bike and just wasn't quite. <laughs> the um, some child was getting too close to the pedals at that point. That was not paying enough attention. I uh one of the the contrasting movies that popped into my head 
it, which is utterly so different, but does have elements of this same fair mentality as the greatest showman. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, Barnum and the invention of the circus kind of, or that kind of circus, but, and it's, and it's like a ridiculously polished uh, blast out the songs dance movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's that in that way, it's not at all the same, but a lot of the, the vibe from the carnival players in the greatest showman plays out here too, which is that if you're, if there are things about you that cause you not to be accepted by the mainstream society, that you can have a family with these people who will accept anyone, as long as your heart's pure. It's all it's all about the inside versus the outside. You can be you can be a crazy freak, and you can you can uh, not only have love and support from these people, but have ultimately like a success. You know, you can mm. you can be famous. You can people will you know adulate you for the stuff that you can do in the in the show but, but it's all in this context of this place where anything goes you know people can just be themselves mm-hmm. um which i think is a bit what uh the duchess she had her like alter ego she's like oh i'm gonna go to my get my fair outfit and go and like hang out with some crazy people and do whatever i want and then like get changed real quick into the fancy ball gown in the in the carriage to get back to for the symphony you know with the queen mm-hmm. She had her her uh, her like two lives that she was leading almost. Yeah, it's a, like a found family concept, right? Yeah, it's, it's a you know as opposed to the genetic family structure, it, it's you know the the people you're able to kind of make a family with um, who matter. And yeah, there is that again that kind of uh, that carnival element, which we, you know we keep coming back to that this sort of inversion of things. Is that it's it's the it's this seems to be this like found family that can last that can endure that actually um, has a future unlike the kind of the genetic families which um, you know we we don't actually see I think any of the the monarchs with a family right we don't see Anne or James even you know even though I mean James obviously had children and was one of them um but you, you don't really get the sense that she's james's daughter they're sort of isolated individuals within a court mm-hmm. um yeah and it, it it seems like the the sort of privileging of of the found family like you're talking about where you can have acceptance if you know in this case if your heart's pure or you know also if you could if you have a if you have a stick you could sell a little bit of show or a or a too snouted pig or something like that then you you can have like you're saying you can have um both success and companionship because you don't get it at all right the sense that james and anne are actually father daughter i actually didn't even remember that even yeah. historically i kind of forgotten that <laughs> yeah the monarchs just appear and they just they're they they're they're really only there to fulfill their role you know they they don't have uh I mean, they're a bit vindictive. It's more like uh, just representative of, it, they don't seem like real people to me. They seem just like representative of, of the <clears throat> evil, uh, careless, uh, you know, royal ruling class. Yeah, which they are also. I mean, you <laughs> right. know, the, the, the villains <laughs> are pretty black and white, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're if they had mustaches, they would be twirling. <laughs> um, but, Although if you're the if you're the king, and you were had any inclination to not be evil, when Barkel Fedro has a secret 
uh, uh, like statue tunnel into your bedchamber. Which why? Why does which he do is that? wonderful tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course like, he does. Of course yeah. he does. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, that I was I, I watched this with a friend and we were talking about like how probably common that was as opposed to weird like this idea of if you were a regal you just didn't have privacy like yeah. you slept in a room with people who you know like it was a really big deal to like change the the monarch like people would um you know hand the monarch different articles of clothes while while the person changed so it was like him like sneaking into the room was probably like this actually historically speaking was probably pretty common uh, you know <laughs> like there probably just wasn't a lot of privacy whisper um, sweet evil nothings into the king's ear while he's sleeping yeah yeah but yeah a little there's a little you know <laughs> i don't know i thought it was great i love yeah. this, like poking him <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the king's eyes like, it's great yeah it's great. Mm -hmm. yeah i do also like how stupid the king is he's a uh, unlike Anne, who uh, has some seems to have some sort of devious intelligence it's time for movie rent so you guys having uh been much more exposed to silent movies uh, especially that both of you um one thing that struck me about this was the was the score and i know that silent movies frequently had a i think a live performer maybe but mm -hmm. i would i waited because i i didn't know if it was at all original and then very close to the end, I heard what I thought to be synthesizer. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. But I mean, and then I saw at the very end that it was recorded by like a, a movie silent tone. movies, something silent mm. movie studio or something. It's it was I can answer that if that when when was that when was that recorded? Do you know, it was, it was recorded contemporaneous. Yeah. So there was a technique. I don't know, Pat, if this is what you're going to say. Yeah, it was exactly. Okay, go I for it. Go for it. Mm -hmm. No, I was just going to say, I think it's fascinating that the sound, I think, is is really interesting in this movie because I had the exact same reaction. And my reaction was more with the because as, as Tom has has noted on some of the other ones, the, you know, sometimes you have the diegetic sounds, correct, Tom? Am I correct? Tom? Yes, that's inside yes. the context of the yeah. film. Yeah. So like, you know, sometimes they had a little film. mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sometimes you yeah. have like the, you know like you'll have the soundtrack and everything like that will be going with it, and obviously those were being played live usually with it. But like you know, like a bell will be rung and a bell will ring in the orchestra. Like okay, you know, like that's the diegetic sound. So sometimes you get those things. But I thought it was it, and I didn't again knowing nothing about this movie. The thing that struck my favorite one is is. <laughs> You know, and, and there's like a diegetic sound we mentioned earlier when they have like the, and they're closing, which again, I love is when they're closing the Iron Maiden and they have that like horn sound or whatever <laughs> instrument it is. And I mean, again, it's very, it's very disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, but then I noticed like my, and I wanted what I, I love with the five-legged cow, because I love that they sort of have this like rabble rabble sound going on in the background. And when they're looking at the five-legged cow, I love because they literally have the crown in the background going, oh, it's just a cow. I love that they're going, oh, it's just a cow. And then they're showing them going to the other exhibits being like, yeah, there's not. They're having this big super reaction. I thought, that's bizarre that this existed at the time you know i'm like what is this recorded later i'm like what are they doing with this and i looked it up and basically yeah apparently the film was done right at the transition when sound movies were coming out 
And so they delayed the release of the movie for a year so that they could go back. And obviously they can't record dialogue on it. Like that was way too difficult to try to splice in dialogue. It would have just looked like ridiculous. So they couldn't splice the dialogue in on top of it, but they could record sort of just background noises and stuff like that and actually have that sound played during it. So like at the very end of the movie, there's a song, there's an actual song that sings I think with like Winplane and D and this kind of stuff. And that was an actual original song that was played with the movie. Huh. So it's sort of like this bizarro transition between silent film and sound film. So it's still using title cards. It's still using, you know, sort of an orchestral score, but they had enough technology to sort of spl- splice in, which again, I love mm. the rebel rebel sounds um, <laughs> that are sort of in the background and sort of splice in a song overlay. And it has, it's a, it makes for a really weird quality film, mm. bizarro quality film. So I don't know if that was what you were going with Tom, but I, I thought yeah. it was a fascinating thing with this movie. Yeah. It's something we've run into before. It's called movie tone. It was a, so this is a, it's universal, but it was. It's a William Fox developed tech, and what it is, it's it's um, they they actually have the sound by projecting light through it. So it's actually on the film. Um, so I guess when they, they spliced it in, they actually kind of attached it so you can have synchronized sound, like guaranteed synchronized sound, because it goes with the actual film. Um, and didn't. Yeah, and uh, it didn't last very long. We did it. We actually ran into it with one other silent movie we did. I um, remember you mentioning it. Before. I'd actually forgotten about it, but I do remember you mentioning it. I don't remember which movie it was. I don't think it wasn't Nosferatu. Um, it definitely wasn't Nosferatu. Was it? Um, it had to have been Sunrise then. Yeah, it must have been Sunrise. Have been sunrise. That's also that's also a. Fox it's also film. late. Yeah, and that's a yeah. late. That's a late twenties film. So yeah, it had to have been Sunrise. Yeah, um, but it's yeah like a really interesting thing, and apparently it if you get the light right, like with certain LED projectors, you can still make it work. Like it will still, that old film oh. will still like have the sound. Um, yeah, but that the, the sound, like the rabble thing does have a kind of- oh, it's, it's just even... a cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny, yeah. I didn't recognize that there could, because, um, well, it's a silent movie, but, but I'm not used to movies with no dialogue. You know, you didn't, mm really have to listen to it i mean obviously it was giving you some of the emotional uh tenor and stuff like that but um but you didn't need it for the plot but maybe i didn't catch that there were a couple words maybe <laughs> yeah it, it's an odd it's an odd space too because um you have the writer of the script but the writer of the title cards are different people so they would just film a lot of different arrangements and kind of uh pick which one matched the eventual words they were going to to use in the story they were going to use so there's a lot of like um i don't call it mismatches but a lot of purposeful vagueness possibly um but there's a lot of uh time of acting with no title card Mm -hmm. i i I thought i mean it's i'm used to to dialogue heavy movies and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of lack of dialogue sometimes yeah i mean i think especially by this by this point in time that title cards were sort of seen as like a mm-hmm. like a crutch like you were supposed to do movies with as few title cards as possible mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I suspect to show the story visually kind of, yeah, I I think it was sort of like, if you can't get away in, and that's why like, there are certainly are certain sequences where like, you can tell they're talking to one another, but you don't need, you, you get it. Like we know what they're saying essentially. So you didn't need them. And I think that was the idea was that like, if you're using a title card, you sort of, you're sort of quote unquote failed, you know, (laughs) at, at telling the story, like you shouldn't have needed to not again. It's like, I don't. Don't you don't need the exposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was like you, you, you know. Obviously, they knew they needed them, but was it? What was the movie? Did we watch it? Was the movie that only has like three title cards? Wasn't there some movie that was like oh. ridiculously few? Yeah, I don't know used? if we watched it in here. Um, I, I don't know. Because uh, I think we talked about it with Gold. Nosferatu. No. Yeah. Because remember, it might, have been, it might have been Sunrise. Sunrise is very. I think sun, it might have been Sunrise because yeah. I think we talked about it even when we watched Nosferatu because Nosferatu has like, like a, like a billion titles. Yeah, cards, it's I pretty. Think. It has a lot more text. Yeah. It has a lot more text, and mm. you know, there's like some of the later ones. They were basically like, no, we we try to use as few as we possibly can. <laughs> I um, know there was a bet with with Chaplin and Buster Keaton, like who can use fewer title cards. That was what uh, it was. We did. Yeah. That was what it was. We were talking about. Yeah. And uh, I think and I think that was Chaplin when I pointed won. out that and I think I pointed out that there's the great um, there used to be an Academy Award for title cards. <laughs> yeah, there was actually there was, there was given for like two lived. years. It was given yeah. for like two years. It was an Academy Award for title mm. cards. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Very good. Uh, so another thing we didn't talk about actually the performance. Um, what's his name? Conrad and his weird mouth. Is is he? Like actually, I mean, like did they did they like tack his mouth up or something? I because, think because how could he? I mean, like how mm. do you do that for a whole film? It wasn't tacked up. It was it was a make. It was put on apparently. Apparently, Ooh. it's like prosthetics. Oh, um, okay, because it was the 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 guy was Jack. Yeah, Jack Pierce. Who is also the guy who came up with Frankenstein, the 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 aesthetic, the Boris Karloff aesthetic of Frankenstein that we all know and love. Um, Frankenstein's monster. Tom. Frankenstein's monster. Though, <laughs> though, to be fair, he might have done the makeup for Frankenstein too. This is also true. This <laughs> so, is also yes. true. As long you, as you you don't know what I love. Might as well Yeah, but it was this. It was a Greek immigrant who's real name i can't pronounce but he went by jack pierce who kind of became like the universal makeup guy and he did this is one of his earlier things and he did the 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 face um but yeah apparently he was uh not not pierce sorry but um conrad Veet, uh who apparently was like um uh the scene when he gets appointed to the house of lords and kind of rejects them apparently he got a standing ovation from the extras after doing that scene well and whatnot but he has made an appearance on talking pictures trivia before in uh the cabinet of dr caligari he played the monster in that film non-grinning but i was gonna say um from a performance perspective his facial expressions especially he and they did a whole bunch of times where where he had the trope of of hiding his mouth or 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 not hiding it like the reveal kind of um with scarves and with it he had like this almost nervous tick of of slowly putting his hands in front of his face um but the when in the close-ups of him when he was doing that i really thought that he had like a, a an exquisite pain you know, he's smiling, but but the intensity of of the pain that was also showing through and he's 
he's trying to maintain as much of a demeanor maybe as he can, but he's, he's kind of horrified with himself. And but there was a lot of uh, dimension in that. Yeah. It struck me as, um, like this seems like it's, it's very, it's almost like a mime. Like it had that very mime yeah. quality. And it, it struck me that this movie is like, and I, I don't think you could do this movie with dialogue, with sound. Like, I don't think it would work. Mm-hmm. Like if you had him, if you had him like actually speaking, I don't think it would work. Like, I think it would become almost comic because there's no way that this guy could it would become ridiculous hearing him sort of actually hearing him speak and yet the way that like that performance actually works and particularly in that house of the lords one like i'm you know it's sort of the idea of like a character standing up there with that kind of face sort of like pointing and shouting and being like i am a man like that sort of you know it has that elephant 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 man man kind of quality to it um which is something to be said about that, that the fact that like the only way to sort of portray these characters is sort of with, is with this sort of surrealistic kind of expressionistic style. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it wouldn't work if you tried to do this film with sound. It's one of the only silent movies I think that is, that is improved by not have, I mean, I've never seen the artist, but it's a, it's a silent movie. It's actually improved by not having sound and dialogue. I think it would, I think it wouldn't work if you had that. I think it's better without it. Well, you would immediately have this choice about how to make him sound. Because really, like, his his smile is the only thing that's wrong with him. Otherwise, he's basically a kind of a regular guy, for the most part, it seems like. A uh, little, you know, a little shy, maybe, or something. But, uh, I mean, like, Mark Hamill, well, he was the voice. I mean, they drew they drew the Joker the certain way that they did, and that's really... Uh, you know, has, has it just outsized uh, the the drawing of it. But Mark Hamill's laugh is what makes it. But it's so extreme because he's completely unhinged. But this guy is not unhinged. I mean, he's basically psychologically. I think he's in pain, but otherwise, one of the least damaged people. So, what would you would you make him sound normal, or would you would you make him have a crazy? Voice? I wouldn't do it. And I guess that's my thing is like, yeah, that's why I wouldn't bother. I think it works better if you just don't have to make that choice. I think if he did, you'd have to, you'd almost have to make him sound normal, I guess, for the way that the character acts, but that would just look weird. Like, (laughs) there'd be something very, there'd be just something I think audio, that's why I think audio doesn't work with this movie. I think it just, it works better without, Mm -hmm. you know, Tom, I think you and I were talking about the last movie. Was it, no, was it, no, it was Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. We're saying like sort of the idea of like tone poems that sometimes telling stories uh, in silent films gets a bit, it's a bit awkward because of just sort of the hurdles. And I think this mm. one just works better is one of the only ones I've seen that works better without mm. sound. I don't think it would work if you put sound on it. Yeah. I really yeah. don't. It, it, and it's, that's interesting because normally the mime, like you see like a mime, perf- I don't know, I haven't seen that much mime performances, but I guess it's the, I mean, you could probably speak this better than I can, but of like, um, I guess like the mime is sort of what, like the outline of a person and you kind of cast your own, your own ideas upon it is that how typically because that's what i got you got that kind of from him but you also had this um but you also he was also very deeply the the performance was also deeply personalized so there seems to be again this like contrast of there's this sort of surface that you can impose things on and then clearly that surface is is a, a you know is betraying what's beneath it um I guess I suppose I don't know that much about mine to comment intelligently. Oh, neither do I. 
Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Clearly, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That my knowledge of mime is very limited, yeah. but it did strike it, me as very mime-esque. Yeah. That there is a, mime does have a, a frozen mm-hmm. quality to it, that the body and the face, that the face and everything else is sort of frozen, mm-hmm. and you do everything with, you know, gesture and sort of all these other kind of things. So it, it has that quality to it. The other thing I, I wanted to ask about, uh, we've brought this up a little bit. I don't know if you have anything else to say on it. Uh, your word, Pat, carnivalesque, and like the kind of like the Bakhtin idea and how it how it functions here, if it does. Yeah, I mean, if, if it does, <laughs> but I mean, how, how big, speaking of pedantic, um, so <laughs> the yeah, I mean the the idea that obviously Bakhtin has is is this uh, Mikhail Bakhtin? I'm just Mikhail googling Bakhtin. right right now. Mik- yeah. Mikhail Bakhtin, mm. um, which b- my reading is mostly on his Dostoevsky, so which it mm. does include his, which does include his Carnivalesque, but mo- it's more with his Rabelais. Um, but the the idea that I, that that sort of there is a requirement to sort of like almost like within literature of flipping, um, you know, high becomes low, low becomes high, and sort of this idea that that there's almost sort of a cath- he's not using quite this word but there's almost this cathartic release that comes from it Mm -hmm. um and what i think is interesting with that concept is how much and not knowing the victor hugo one but victor hugo obviously knows very much the carnivalesque i mean if you've seen you can you can literally watch you can watch the disney version of (laughs) hunchback of notre dame and understand Mm -hmm. that that that's carnival you know that's the opening song is related Mm -hmm. to carnival so this is certainly well within that tradition um and so i don't know quite how it works though as a romance Mm -hmm. because this is a romantic film in -hmm. which ultimately everything sort of and which i guess is carnivalesque carnivalesque has to be temporary it can't be a permanent Mm -hmm. sort of reversal of roles and ultimately everyone does sort of end up exactly back where they were supposed to be Mm-hmm. Um, the queen is still the queen and you know they're <laughs> still they're still low peasants and they run off their very way realistically mm-hmm. the only one who doesn't end up sort of in his original quote-unquote original role is actually Quinn um, whatever his name is Quinn Payne yeah. Payne because he is supposed to be the son of a noble and does not he rejects that and ends mm-hmm. up somewhere else he's really the only one who doesn't actually end up mm-hmm. where his his social role would place him yeah, the, the inversion lasts. Yeah, that's the only inversion of the carnival that actually lasts. Um, mm. Because even even someone like Bard of Bard, I don't know the names. Bard, Bard, <laughs> Bard. that's Bard. The the Barkel Fedro. Barkel Fedro. He has this element though too, because he's supposed to be a jester, but he's clearly not very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this sort of reversal, but he's sort of does he fall? Doesn't he? Does he fall from grace or no? Does he stay where he was? I think he stays where he was. I don't think anything bad Wait, happens to him. Doesn't doesn't the dog kill him? Oh, that's right. The dog like attacks his throat. Yeah, the, yeah. the dog kills him, and, and then yeah. he falls in the water and and basically drowns. Yeah. Mm. So that actually is exactly. So I feel like everybody mm. sort of ends up back where they were supposed to, except Gwynplaine. He's mm. the only one who ends up sort of in a permanent state of of carnivalesque, hmm. which is an interesting. I mean, I'm just making this up as I go. Yeah, that's um, fine. <laughs> but I think that that's an interesting point that he's really the only one that ends up permanently, as as Disney would say, topsy turvy. Um, <laughs> I think I'm the only one that liked Hunchback. 
Uh, <laughs> I actually haven't seen it. Oh, it's, it's good. one of the few few Disney that I haven't seen. I want to watch it. It's it's like it's. I think I like. I actually, it's one of my favorites from that era. I think it's actually like a really. I think it's like a really good one. Um, but I don't they used think one of that that main song in in a lot of the uh, the fireworks spectacular shows that they have, and I really love that song. It, it plays well when they when they include it in a big montage and it's very dramatic. But um, I should check out the the movie itself. The contrast when he goes and like how bad the house or the uh, the House of Lords the or Pierce is to him. The the way that they I mean obviously uh, they don't have any respect for him, so they're just all laughing. But the the way that they portray all of the uh the lords as just being completely base essentially like they have no uh there's no decorum really there they're just they're they're having a riot about him the same way that the uh like the the carnival folk have a riot when the when the soldiers come and they're invading their they're taking their space and they're taking their show they almost they behave worse i mean it's it's like it has no it's it's not a good portrayal of anybody from that uh, class. Mm. What's fascinating about it is it plays off of because there's the scene which I get, which is interesting because you're right. I hadn't really compared it, but the scene I would compare it to is the scene when he's when Gwynplaine's actually performing, and the crowd is sort of cheering with him and yelling, and they're sort of being like, "Yeah, bring you know, bring Gwynplaine," and they're and yet both of them sort of bring him pain, like no matter what, you know, even you know they're laughing sort of like the i'm not laughing at you i'm not laughing i'm laughing with you mm-hmm. they're all laughing at him yeah and, I, and yet you're and yet the house of lords scene obviously feels much meaner <laughs> like yeah it's a much crueler crueler mm-hmm. sequence um is it laughing and then love or laughing and and then disdain you know yeah what is yeah. does it i don't even remember does it matter to him or what how does that end he Tom? I think he just he ends up kind of like do, doing the like you said the elephant man that you know I yeah. you know I I'm a man and I'm I'm not going to marry her that's what he ends up doing and then he has to like run away because like, yeah, I suppose it's going to be a, a shotgun wedding of sorts if they if they had shotguns um a lance wedding and and they had guns Guns. Do they have shotguns? They have blunderbuss. They have blunderbuss. Uh, yeah. oh, it's a blunderbuss. Okay. It's a blunderbuss. It's basically a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. More more or less. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what he ends up kind of kind of rejecting them. And I think they're also laughing at the idea of him marrying this woman, which is, you know, very um I it it is kind of ultimately kind of gross, right? It, it that that sort of wedding and not just because he's, he's physically deformed, but the whole thing is. Um, and so I think that's, and he ends up like lifting up the napkin and putting it over his eyes instead of his mouth. That, yeah. That one point. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's the change there. And that's when he kind of declares he's, I am a man. And then he, that he's not going to, that he's not going to marry her. And they kind of, then they get angry at him because he's defying the queen, you know, and that's the one thing you can't do. They, um, they can see his mouth. They can see who he really is. And he doesn't want to see any of them. Yeah. He's yeah, done with them. <laughs> it's apparently it's a whole comment on 1848. Like the whole thing was intended um, uh, for the, like the 1848 French revolution, which is why probably everybody's name sounds so French in this. <laughs> for Victor oh. Hugo. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. For Hugo. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, it was. Um, oh, who was king then? It was. Uh, Just go with Louis. You get a good shot at it. It wasn't. It wasn't a Louis. <laughs> I know it was, it was, it was like <laughs> Charles the Ninth or something like that. Yeah, but that was a, that's apparently what the whole book is supposed to be. It was like his mm. um, kind of hand waving at uh, at the uh, the French aristocracy. Uh, the only little thing is, uh, and we touched on it briefly, but what outsized role the dog has? First of all, the <laughs> dog is named like man, basically. Mm-hmm. And it, he has these penultimate, uh, you know, plot movements where he does rescuing and he is the, he kills uh, a Bark Hill Fedro. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are huge, important, uh, set, you know, like like moving the plot forward mm-hmm. so it can't be a coincidence right i mean it's it's like he I, has I that outsized so. role yeah my my reading of it is that this is sort of uh um that that what what's going on here why it's like grotesque is that you're um and why it's also kind of like i'd I like I gravitated towards Pat's word about carnival is that like it's it's a moral inversion like this space when we go and watch this movie it's like it's people have the same roles at the beginning at the end like you you were mentioning Pat for for the most part Um, but throughout the thing there is a sort of what the grotesque gives us is it makes us see that there's that who's high is actually kind of ethically low and vice versa which is is a pretty common trope, but I think with the dog, it becomes very, very clear because it's like he is the most human and the most active in pursuit of the quote unquote good, even though he's, you know, not human. He's, he's the one character who, who isn't a human being. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of my reading and why like even like uh, um, Gwynplaine is a degraded person. You know, he's physically degraded as a person, but he's also has the most humanity and it's the same with d d has maybe the most maybe they share the most humanity i don't know um i don't know i don't know how the, that contest works but you know she's also kind of physically uh physically disabled but she has that kind of inner light and so i think the dog is kind of consistent with that trope which isn't yeah overly unique Over, that's that's not a phrase it, it isn't unique but um you know it's still interesting it's Oh, I'm sorry, Pat, but I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, Andy. <laughs> and if it makes you feel better, you guys did answer the same amount of questions, correct? So nice. Yeah, that, that's like that's like basketball. Like you hit the same number of shots, but they got more three pointers. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yes, a little, a little. Uh, well, let's applaud Andy. Let's really dig this in for Pat. Thank you, thank Very you. Good. Well, 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 good showing, Pat. You almost had me. <laughs> yep, right. we'll do it again. We'll do it again. You can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios, and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We're extremely grateful to all of those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. Are you still laughing? Why or why not? Let us know on Twitter or email us at talkingpicturestrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679. Thanks again, Andy and Pat, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. 
Any plugs? Anything you want to? Why isn't there a fax number? Why don't you guys have a fax number? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got, you got, you got a phone number. Yeah, we should have a fax. I don't yeah, think anybody's ever called us. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was uh, wondering. Where, where, where did that phone number go? <laughs> yes, please, please beep us at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right um you can find me on twitter at thomas layman 15 uh, i know it's been six weeks since our last b-side but i i'm we have at least one coming up so i promise the b-sides will be coming back you can find uh the right now absent nick on twitter at the nicknamed um and join us next time when we discuss nick's recommendation from 2019 Joker. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Hey. Next week, we'll be discussing Joker. Tom, how was your watch? God. All right. So I watched this movie when it, like, I, oh, God, I don't know. When it first came out on HBO, because I certainly wasn't going to the theaters for this. And uh, so the, the, the chaos, the, the discussion on this movie from my friends on the left was this was an apology to incels my the the chaos from my friends on the right was this was a movie that like said we need more mental health funding or some crap like that and so i went into this movie thinking there's this kind of combat of of different political positions and it was really significant and the movie is so effing trite and and the kind of um, expressions or positions that the movie supports or the positions anyone in any kind of um, uh, from any kind of perspective could take that I, I couldn't stand it I couldn't imagine that people could be upset about a position this movie takes when it's so undefined in terms of um, in terms of an actual belief someone might have it drove me up a damn wall trying to watch this film and I I, I'm sorry, I hated the performance. I hated the, like this like sweaty, you know, weight loss effort that he made to embody this character and the way he ran was such a performative thing. It would, you know- Save something so for the episode, on. Tom. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, and, you know, like the, the kind of yellow filter that was reminiscent of Taxi Driver, but had about 1% of the subtlety, it, it all drove me kind of up a damn wall. And I think part of it was this kind of the, the, the conversation that was going on in, uh, among people at the time, amongst different periodicals and whatnot, which you could go online and find what they were saying. But um, part of that... I, I, Part of that actually informed my response a lot because I just I could not imagine people being this upset over a movie. You know, that's I think that's what maybe pushed me over the edge. Um, but anyway, I, I will stop now. So I loved it in, in conclusion. Um, and so I'll, I'll turn it over, I think, to Ragnar. Ragnar, what did you think? Well, um, let's see. Following that, I, you know, I, I've talked to some people um, and I, I feel like people just fall into one of two camps, either Tom's camp where it's just like basic, the you know, derivative drivel um, or my camp, which is a big fan of the movie. I see it more as a Todd Phillips uh, love letter to Martin Scorsese, early Martin Scorsese. And I enjoyed it in that uh, regard. I thought it was very, very interesting. I've seen it twice. It hooked me both times. Um, 
yes, there, the homage turns to imitation a lot. Um, but I think seeing Todd Phillips' um, previous work, I think this movie is far better than it has any right to be. I don't think he's a very good filmmaker. And so I was blown away by this compared to what I was expecting. Uh, how about yourself, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I don't think I have anything quite as deep as you guys, uh, but I I don't know. I, I guess I'm aware of the opinions that various people had about it. Like Tom said, I really didn't think it took on the mantle of any of those opinions. I think, I don't know, maybe it intended to, but to my eye, it just kind of said, here's the way some stuff is rather than having an opinion about it. It just seemed to to put it out there. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I didn't really think it it hammered on the mental health part, although it was clearly part of it. And uh, although the incel part was also part of it, I kind of felt like, you know, this isn't a guy who is the uh, equivalent of sitting in his basement playing video games. This is like a guy trying to live life and having a hard time. I feel like those are kind of two different things. I don't know. I could see how maybe somebody would think that that's an incel kind of reference, but I didn't really get it. Um, and I guess overall, I thought the movie was, uh, was good and horrifying, like in the, I'm glad I saw it and I'm not sure I want to see it again. Um, Nick, what'd you think? I definitely didn't have all the baggage that Tom may have brought into this film. I saw it clean, fresh, no opinions. Most of the things you're talking about, I did not go into the interwebs and explore. Okay, I just took the movie for what it was. And I actually enjoyed his plight, his challenges. It, I felt bad for this guy, even when he was starting to do things that were clearly not the right thing to do what drove him to do it? Was it his mental illness problems? Was it society? Was it a combination? So I enjoyed this film. I liked his portrayal. I, I liked everything about it. And, and even though it was Batman adjacent, it really was just a skin, you know, this, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in the episode, but I think I enjoyed it more, not diving into what everyone else's opinions were about it. 